and welcome to the BBXX podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to be your go-to resource for sexuality, intimacy, and communication to help you better understand yourself, the culture that has shaped you, and how to live deeper and more meaningful relationships as a result. Let's get intimate. In the second episode of our talk with Caroline Haldman, we discussed the mental health crisis of millennials, whether or not social media should actually be called anti-social media, and how when the average teenager is consuming 10.5 hours of media a day, the people who have the most influence over them happen to be the same marketers who make money by feeding people's low self-esteem and care more about their wallet than their well-being. One of our slogans is better relationships equals better life. And um, what that means then for these younger generations and how is that tied to, to this intimacy crisis and kind of what is the current landscape of that crisis and what can we try and do to combat it? We're definitely in a mental health crisis that started with millennials who are aged is now 25 to 39. Um, we started to see that um, early millennials were having a slide in, in terms of their mental health, meaning um, far more uh, young people had depression than any previous generation, and it has only gotten worse. So uh, millennials had record numbers of depressed people in their generation, and now uh, Generation Z, we're seeing even higher rates of depression. And this is not a function of diagnosing differently. Um, this is actually a function of shifting mental health. And there are lots of factors that contribute to this, um, but certainly one factor is uh, that human beings are becoming less connected. And it, it does have a lot to do with media consumption. And with Gen Z, it has a lot to do with being raised into a culture where social media consumption is the norm. So what we do know about high rates of media consumption is that it leads to um, antisocial attitudes and behaviors, meaning that you're simply less connected to other human beings. And then you have, you over time develop less of a desire to be connected to other human beings, even though this is a key function of what makes you happy in life. We know from human, you know, lots of studies of humans that connecting to other people is one of the primary drivers of happiness. Um, what we also know now with social media is the more time you spend with social media, and especially the more time you spend curating your image on social media, the higher your rates of depression. Um, it's not just a disconnection from other human beings that is driving this lack of happiness, these increasing rates of depression. It's also all of the things, the baggage that goes along with being performative on social media. So people's self-esteem, young people's self-esteem is really suffering from having to constantly be performing and curating a, a self online. Um, what we do know, though, is that connecting with other human beings in real life um, can pretty quickly shift a human being's happiness. Um, it could also make you uh, much more social pretty rapidly. Uh, one study by uh, uh, a researcher out of the University uh, of California, Irvine, finds that it takes about 14 days for a young person who's really disconnected from other human beings because of social media. It takes 14 days for them to kind of reemerge as a social creature, which is what human beings are. And so... Um, Social media has a lot of wonderful 
um, aspects, but it, it is also driving rates of depression for young people. And so I think the most uh, important thing you can do as a young person, if you want to increase your happiness, is to unplug uh, from devices uh, as much as you possibly can. Uh, you know, maybe just look at your phone for an hour a day and otherwise you lock it up. Um, your laptop the same, like lock up your devices for most of the day. Um, but also reconnect with other human beings. We know um, it's not just romantic relationships. It's actually um, just intimate relationships more broadly. In fact, uh, the friendship studies that came out in the past 10 years find that close female friendships and close male friendships that are are uh, platonic, that are not romantic, actually have more of an effect on your happiness than romantic relationships. And it's not to say that romantic relationships aren't important, but at the end of the day, if you want to increase your happiness, um, having a few close, intimate friends with whom you share details about your life and your emotional state uh, will dramatically improve your happiness. And if you get sick, we know there are a few studies that find that your recovery rates are much higher from cancer if you have close friends. Um, also, if you want to get in better shape, we know that if you do it with a close friend that you're much more likely to stick with your program. So there are all of these benefits that having, you know, close, intimate friends, romantic or not, uh, can bring into a human's life. Better relationships equals better life. So for that, what I'm going to start referring to as anti-social media. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> I wonder if they would go back and recoin it. Um, I'm on the younger side of millennials, but the mentally I am an old person who lives under a rock <laughs> in certain senses. So I I wonder how, because it's very clear how um, the online behavior changes the way we, we think and act in that sense, but how much is the online behavior just a substitution for time in person with other people versus actually changing those experiences as well? It's a great question. Um, so social media can connect you to other people, right? There are these great apps. There are all these dating apps. There are even friendship apps where you could find people IRL. Um, but we know that the interactions that people are having online are not the equivalent of having an interaction even over the phone or in person. Um, we know that um, people online, for example, um, present a lot more false information about themselves if they're speaking with somebody, you know, in a in a chat room versus speaking with them in real life, um, we also know that people um, engage in activities online, like posting things that they would never say in real life. And so, um, our online persona. Um, is both far more perfect than we are. We tend to curate ourselves as being happier than we are, but also we tend to be ruder online um, than we are in real life. All of which indicates that who we are online is not actually who we are in real life. And so the human interactions that we have online um, are not the same and are not certainly as intimate or close or honest as um, the interactions that we have in real life. And I, it's interesting, I think a lot of young people um, feel like social media brings them closer together with people, and it certainly provides them more information about what's happening in the lives of the people whom they care about, um, but it's not actually bringing them more emotionally close or intimate with the people they care about. That's something that happens you know, almost exclusively in real life or through phone conversations. Um, it sort of widens the circle rather than deepening it in terms of their social circle. Um, 
And so how do we help people realize either that, you know, this online persona is different, it's just a curated self, or help people change that behavior? Because I imagine that perhaps some of the effects in the in-person interactions is that there's some sort of cognitive dissonance perhaps between trying to kind of live different versions of yourself or that um, the in-person interactions perhaps aren't changed besides by the fact that they're on their devices and distracted. Um, I know for a fact at least that is one of the consequences um, in terms of whether or not people are actually losing the capacity to connect as deeply in person maybe they're mentally distracted or just out of practice you don't use it you lose it um i guess there's kind of a range but how would you recommend that we help people differentiate um and live accordingly in terms of the online versus offline i'm concerned about the harmful effects of what it means to perform someone who is different someone who is perfect uh, just looking at the data that shows that people who, you know, the more you engage in that, the lower your self-esteem. So I'm worried about the harms of kind of the false self, um, not so much in in kind of constraining humans. Humans are can do whatever they want, right, at the end of the day. But um, I can see, so disconnecting um, does help having rules and there are lots of online resources for doing this and i think the reason that we have have gotten wise our experts have gotten wise to the need to disconnect for cer- certain periods of time is because social media is addictive so it's it's um, an issue where we're not necessarily in control of our consumption and our use. And it takes over our lives in the same way that, you know, video game addiction or porn addiction takes over your life, right? Where um, it's something that you crave, just like, you know, the same place in your brain that lights up with cocaine lights up with with uh, an addiction to social media. Um, we know that, that you get a release of um, the chemical that makes you happy in your brain when you get a message and you look at your phone and you see that somebody has contacted you, the little ding. Um, so as human beings, we don't understand the brain effects of, um, you know, the, the mid and long-term brain effects of this particular addiction. But I think moving forward, um, we as a society will become more aware of what the experts already know, which is that um, this sort of escapism through social media and through con- you know the constant addiction to your devices or constant connection to your devices rather than other human beings um, is an addiction. And for some people, it's a real problem. I think for everyone, it's a problem in terms of um, mitigating our intimacy and distracting us when we are in settings and, you know, just having simple rules like when you're meeting up with a group of friends, um, you know, the great rule of whoever looks at their phone first has to pay the whole bill. So if you can make it through a meal without looking at your phone at all, then fine, you'll pay your share of the meal. But otherwise, if you flip your phone up and and look at it and you're the first one to do that, then, then you're footing the bill for everyone. So setting up, you know, simple rules to make your social life actually more intimate and more present mm-hmm. um, 
human beings are losing their ability to be present. And we certainly see this, uh, you know, in, in classroom settings with uh, the amount of time that students are able to focus on particular concepts or ideas. And if you don't have a rule, for example, against devices in the classroom, forget it. Um, you are competing with, you know, a handheld device in everyone's hand. You're competing for brain space. And so, again, what are the medium and long-term effects of, of living a distracted life. What does that mean in terms of your ability to focus on one thing and enjoy one thing moving forward? So social media is having these deleterious effects um, on humans that we don't fully understand. But what we do understand is that it's addictive, that it ends up causing depression and loneliness, um, that it lowers self-esteem, while at the same time, it's connecting you with people and making you feel like you're better connected in the world. And it's also producing a generation of people who are more concerned about political issues. So um, social media is really a double-edged sword when it comes to intimacy and happiness, human happiness. Um, so to kind of wrap up that thought and, and the conclusion to the question, um, it's basically helping people who are listening understand how important it is that you know knowing the the struggles that females face and the struggles that people who are raised in a masculine environment face that all of this helps you better understand your own identity and perhaps how you've contributed not only to your side but perhaps the other one and as i often like to say that bbxx is about identity and culture more than anything so knowing the whole story without all those different pieces you can never really understand your own part in it hey everyone quick announcement if you like what you're listening to please take just one minute to rate and more specifically to write a review of our podcast and if you want more content like this, be sure to follow us on Instagram where we post awesome stories, do Q&As and takeovers with experts, and have links to sign up for our digital book club, which is actually a weekly content curation. Join us and follow us to help us change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. Lastly, we're looking for awesome people who are excited about what we're doing. So if you or anyone you know is interested in collaborating, helping out, or working for BBXX, shoot me an email at Sasha, that's S-A-S-Z-A, at bbxx.world. Thanks for joining us as we work to change the culture and the conversation surrounding intimacy and relationships. That's all. Back to the show now. The other day I heard some women speaking um, about kind of childcare and what you mentioned about how, you know, more men are staying at home and da da da. But one of the women was saying that in her office, when she has to run to get her kid from school and has to leave, she feels as though maybe people are looking at her and, you know, she has to kind of uh, legitimize it. But then when her own husband or when you know some of the other male co-workers have to go it's it's admired and he gets you know a shout out what a great dad or you know guy men playing with their children what a great dad versus no just a dad a dad and the same as you know a mom or 
One of the other women then said that her child was sick and she was out of town traveling and both parents' names are on the call list and they repeatedly called her and did not call the husband who was in town and who was not busy. Right, because we assume that women are the primary caregivers of children. It's a social norm. And so what it means to be a good mom, the standards for being a good mom are radically different than the standards for being a good dad. So for example, um, you know, imagine if uh, you overheard a conversation where, um, you know, a father was saying, you know, I'm a great father. I, I you know, she's got the kids, but I, I see him every other weekend. Um, and what a great dad you would think he is. Now imagine a woman, you overhear a woman in public saying, oh, you know, he's got the kids, but I'm a great mother. I see them every other weekend. I mean, it's absurd the different stand, the much higher standard that women have to be seen as good mothers versus good fathers. And that all stems from this idea that women are the assumed natural um, default caregiver for children. Now imagine a world in which there is no default caregiver for children, where um, everyone is uh, caring for children in a way that doesn't uh, reflect ownership, right? And doesn't reflect these gender norms. Um, I, I envision a utopia where we have, um, you know, a lot of people involved in childcare and the standards are the same for everyone, right? How much time you're willing to invest and how you interact with that child. And, and imagine that world. Imagine a world where, um, or, or even, you know, an intermediary step, imagine a world where men, um, are held to the same standards as women when it comes to parenting. Um, that your the children would get so much time, care, and attention um, from two parents versus one if we had the same standards. Instead, we have exactly what you noted, which is um, anytime men are doing anything, it's seen as quote unquote helping women. Um, and oftentimes, men will use that language too. Oh, I'm helping out. No, you're not helping out. You're the parent. Yeah. Um, and even in terms of beyond the whole kind of ethical question behind all of that and what it means for culture, there's also kind of the logistical and economic question behind it. So shout out to my brother who I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone more stoked to be a dad always in any caregiver shape or form in general. And him and my sister-in-law are an incredible couple and he once sent me an article that was about how people overlook the economic consequences of assuming a caregiver and not realizing that that could be a flexible role throughout the relationships and that one it can it can be shared but that that can also change. For example, if one person has a career where in the beginning they need to work their way up the system right away and the other person perhaps is kind of in a longer role where they need to get to a point where they have benefits later on um, or one person wants to pursue um, a riskier career or you know a career change in that sense um, and that people often just look at the trade-off between paying for a babysitter and having one person not work. But the long-term consequences that can add up over time when that person maybe does go back to the workforce and can't be in a higher level position or can't get hired to begin with versus if they have been able to kind of plan their careers around each other and 
and and that you know perhaps in this case a woman who hadn't been working if she has the husband later on if he decides that because of this measuring stick he has been pursuing a career he actually doesn't like because of that shared role he can then take the risk of making that career change later on so there's just this whole other side of things that people mm-hmm. look at the simple math equation and don't understand the underlying consequences and story and women certainly bear the brunt, right, of um, childcare responsibilities. So even if both, uh, you know, if it's a heterosexual couple, um, both parents are working outside the home, she uh, is still doing the bulk of the domestic duties, whether it's childcare or um, whether it is, uh, you know, uh, cleaning up around the house. And Chase Manhattan Bank actually does an assessment of what it would cost if you were to cover uh, the salary for a homemaker. And it's just under $140,000, which is well above the national average. When you actually compensate um, or calculate the compensation for being a wet nurse, for being a tutor, for being a chauffeur, for being a cook, right? For being someone who cleans the house, um, all of those tasks and roles rolled up um, would actually generate Um, a pretty decent wage. But the problem is that we don't value caregiving in our culture because it is feminized. And so um, I envision a world where we actually um, compensate caregiving. Um, And I think it makes a a very kind of reasonable, rational, um, evidence-based sense if you look at it through the lens of the fact that um, caregivers are producing the next generation of both consumers and workers for corporations. So Corporations are getting uh, consumers and workers produced for free, quote unquote free, at great cost to mostly women in our culture. And when you look at this, it disproportionately affects women of color. Um, So I would love to see a world in which we actually compensated caregiving, whether that's caring for an elderly parent, whether that's, you know, proper compensation for childcare and education of people in the educational system, whether that's parenting. So all of this lip service that that we give to, um, you know, really caring about mothers in the home, I want to make sure there's a social safety net. So if that's the occupation you choose, meaning that you are raising children in the home, uh, I want to live in a society that actually compensates women or men in that role. And I think that would actually elevate its status and would attract a lot more men because I think like your brother, there are a lot of men who would love to be parents. They would love for that to be their job. So I don't think that that parenting should, um, you know, in the perfect world, parenting wouldn't be... uh, in the perfect world, parenting would be a job, right? It would be one that we value and we compensate. And so um, maybe you would work part-time in the home and maybe you'd work part-time in another sector, um, but really viewing it as what it is would also cause us to take it more seriously and certainly put more resources behind it. Um, The reason, again, that we don't put resources behind it now is because it's feminized, which is also the same reason that that men are discouraged from engaging in it. Um, So I can imagine a a utopia where we get rid of sexism and we get rid of, you know, the devaluation of homemaking all in one fail swoop. To wrap up, as much as we've talked about kind of the power of media, the negative consequences of media, where do you think we can kind of refer our listeners to? What would you say? Where can people go? I am talking so long for one question. Where can people go 
to find good media? What resources, what kind of spaces, and how can we help people recognize the difference between the two? Common Sense Media is a great resource for folks who, especially parents, but folks in general who want to know the content of different media. So, for example, if you um, want to watch media that is racially diverse and gender diverse and doesn't objectify women, um, they have a lot of evaluations that will tell you, you know, what is in the content of, of different shows or films. Also, um, grademymovie.com is a great website where you can go and it's for films that are opening this weekend and it tells you, it gives grades for race and for gender representation um, of the three people, you know, the top three build people on the screen and then writers, directors, and producers behind the scenes. So it it gives um, you a good sense if you want to put your money, you know, where your politics are. Um, you can avoid films that erase women or people of color um, before films open each week um, if, if films are your thing. Um, in terms of, of good media, I think it's um, also easier to do that now than ever with online streaming. So uh, in research from the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, um, we find that uh, streaming content is much more racially diverse, gender diverse, um, sexuality diverse, and also uh, presents much more complex characters than uh, we're used to seeing in kind of mainstream media and then, you know, the three stations that used to exist, the three broadcast networks. Um, So it's a good time to get better media because the streaming um, outlets are are certainly providing more on their platforms. And you have to pick and choose, but you know, some of my favorites are uh, Orange is the New Black, excellent representations of, um, you know, women of color with agency and, um, you know, lesbian identity and exploration. Um, I love the new uh, Hulu series, Shrill, uh, which features, um, you know, a, a self-described um, fat woman who has a lot of agency and is moving through the world and has become a fashion icon. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, good content out there that's being made by marginalized, traditionally marginalized filmmakers. And we know that when we put women and people of color behind the scenes in positions of leadership in Hollywood, that they end up generating content that is much more inclusive and much more um, diverse and more um, aimed at social justice and less stereotypical. Amazing. Well, oh, my voice again. Another just tangent is that when you said the self-described fat, it made me think that the ability to use that term as just an objective description of some body aspect as tall or short, which are objective body measurements that aren't used to measure somebody's worth. I mean, there are certain correlations with things, but it's not something that kind of drives, is a driving force or inhibitor in somebody's life. Um, Absolutely. I mean, all the myths about, you know, fat people being less healthy, um, you know, fat people um, being lazy. I mean, all of that is it's it's myths. And the term fat has been used as uh, essentially a slur against people who are big. And uh, so it's, you know, always I always want to be cautious about the language that I use. But mm -hmm. I love the fact that we are, you know, as body positive people reclaiming the word fat. Um, to simply be a descriptor. It's not a negative thing. Um, it is a 
body type. And I want to live in a world where people of any body type um, feel good in their own skin. So it's good to see representations of that, like Annie's character in Shrill, where you know she's facing fat phobia and myths about fat people all day long. I mean, it just that's the everyday, you know, the everyday microaggressions, the everyday drip of oppression that fat people face. And uh, she's coming to terms with that, with how to navigate that world without it affecting her, you know, ability to be happy and her ability to be um, satisfied in her life choices. Thank you so much for joining us today. Wonderful. It's been incredible Thank talking you. to you. And I've learned so much and I hope and know that our listeners will have learned so much as well. So thank you. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. Indeed. Thank you so much. The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate, is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. Audio editing, good music vibes, and sound mixing, Daniel Herrera. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time. Bye.